Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Glad you're here. Monique Petrov is with us today, and I don't know, go for a walk, put in earbuds, put on the podcast at your house or apartment, and grab a cup of tea. She digs into her story in this conversation. She shares about her injury, vertebrae, bars, screws, replacing a piece of her tibia from a cadaver, TBI brain injury, so much trauma physically, and yet, listen as she tells the story of coming back, moving beyond that injury, and living her life so beautifully. Please enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Monique Petrov is with us today. Welcome, Monique. Hi. How are you doing today? Um, I'm great. I'm feeling nervous and excited and pretty grateful to be here. Will you um, share a little bit about who you are? Um, Yeah. So I am a trauma survivor, someone who has gone through a lot of physical trauma and emotional trauma. I am a nurse. I am someone who continually reinvents themselves. I'm a writer, I'm a coach, and um, a new wife. (laughs) You just got married. Congratulations. Thank you. As you look back on your life and your story, you mentioned a trauma survivor. Um, Will you share a little bit with the listeners what happened to you that morning some 13 years ago? Yeah. So um, I had made my living, most of my living as a, as an athlete, a triathlete. And I was training for the Hawaii Ironman at pretty high level, obviously, when you're preparing for the world championships. I was three weeks out from the race and I got hit on my last long ride by a van I was probably going about 20 some miles an hour in the van, more than that, close to 30 apparently. And I ended up suffering incredible spinal injury, like at least seven broken vertebrae to like the base of my skull and, you know, broken ribs, punctured lungs, shattered, shattered leg, shattered scapula, arm, knee, was touch and go for quite a while underwent about 18 hours of surgery just on my spine alone and was in a coma afterwards for about six plus days and woke up to a seeing life uh, through different eyeballs, <laughs> I like to say. 
Will you share, before you go there, will you share a little bit about what you woke up to physically? Like, take us to that room in the hospital. Did you know that you had been hit? No, no. So I feel like I was having a dream where I couldn't breathe. And I was having one of those nightmares where I couldn't breathe. And I woke up and I remember blinking and blinking and choking because I woke up actually intubated. And I remember closing my eyes and just praying and being like, this is just just a bad, this is a bad dream. Just go back to sleep. This is a bad dream. And eventually learning later, because I was under a lot of heavy medication, was that the nurses were sitting with me and just telling me, you know, that I needed 30 minutes before they could actually extubate me. What does that mean, extubate you? That means remove the breathing tube from my lungs. I just remember closing my eyes and doing all the yoga breathing I had learned. And for some reason, I woke up and I was saying the Hail Mary of all things. So just praying and praying like, okay, just stay calm, stay calm. Yeah. So eventually I woke up. I had no idea where I was. Um, I thought actually I must've been dreaming about the Hawaii Airman because I, I asked one of my friends later, I said, did I get hit during the race? And she laughed at me. She's like, Monique, it's September. And the race is traditionally in October. Yeah. So when I woke up, I, I had no real idea what had happened and I had no idea the amount of damage that had been done. And the, the, I imagine a hospital room with the smells and sights and the tubes and the beeping. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I remember feeling almost dissociated from my body, like in looking, looking at it and, um, and looking at the nurses and the people standing above me. And yeah, I was in a small ICU room you know, the ventilator was next to me. I had probably five different IV poles, you know, with all the different drugs that were going into me, the sounds for sure. And I could see the monitor and the nurses were just trying to do their best to keep me calm, which I was very calm, but, you know, it was a lot of confusion. So how did you recover? What did your recovery look like from that moment? You know, it's it's funny because I always tell people that I, I, I feel like I'm still recovering. It's been a journey, even though it's been 13 years. It's just, I still feel like I'm recovering from, you know, the trauma of of being hit. And the, the physical part for me, I will go back and say a million times, it's, it was easier for me. You know, being an athlete, I knew how to push myself and I knew how to rest and I knew how to recover. And I, and I could control that part eventually you know, it took about six months for me to be able to, to walk and get out of a wheelchair. And when I started to recover, I looked, I looked normal, but I still couldn't sit up. I was, had a lot of pain and I made my living as a coach, a strength and conditioning coach, a triathlon coach, an athlete. Like how was I going to get back to life? You know, so for me, that my recovery was it was every moment of my life. You know, at first it was my physical recovery and then it became my emotional and my mental recovery. Monique, out of curiosity, did you ever meet the driver of the van? Mm, We never met. There was literally one degree of separation between 
him and I, and um, one of my good friends had known him. I have struggled with like wanting to reach out to him and I've asked. Apparently he had a really hard time with it. And, um, you know, I've, I've never, I've never met him. How have you navigated holding what he did to you? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I remember pretty early on, I would say within the first three years where I have talked to the person who knew him and I do believe in prayer. And for me, I have, you know, prayed for his own well-being. And I've also written, you know, written letters I've never sent and worked on literally making a choice to focus on practicing forgiveness. You know, he's a human too, right? He made a mistake. <laughs> I got a big chunk of that. I got the, the chunk of his mistake. I don't, he didn't maliciously mean to hurt me. I've practiced compassion for him. I've practiced, I can't imagine what it would be like. I'm an empath for sure. And so I would put myself in his shoes and I would, I can't imagine what it would feel like. The road that he was turning onto, he had lived on for 30 years. And so I don't know if for him, it was automatic pilot and he just was heading home, but I can only imagine what it would be like to know that you've just destroyed this person's life. <laughs> and so for me, I forgiveness was something that I felt was a really powerful thing that I needed to focus on for him and for my own healing. Monique, you talk about new eyes, waking up with new eyes. How did you come to terms with the fact that you couldn't, I mean, could you compete at that level again where you were making a living? And how did you navigate choosing a new career? I knew. I mean, the, the doctors, even at the time where I woke, when I woke up, were like, you're never going to be able to run again. If you could, it's not going to be more than a few miles. So I knew. I remember making a conscious choice saying, okay, I have two roads. I'm going to go this way or I'm going to go that way. And I just looked at it as like, this is my new baseline. And I knew I would never be able to race again at that level. I had to make a decision. And so for me, I remember feeling this is it. Like, this is not, my life is not about me anymore. To race and train and compete in the Hawaii Ironman, there's a lot of focus. <laughs> there was a lot of focus on myself. I wanted to compete and race in the top five of my age group and, and all that. So I, but I remember thinking though, this, my life is no longer about me. I am to be a completely of service on this earth. And that is really how I chose to go forward. Um, I know like in the process, we talk about the right road, left road. And for me, if I think about that, which I didn't even know that model, obviously, but if I think about that, I chose the right road. And what did that entail for you in terms of next steps? For me, in undergrad, I wanted to be a, when I went to college, I wanted to be a doctor and that road <laughs> didn't work out for me. So for me, the nurses changed my life. When I was in that hospital, I didn't, I don't even think I understood what nurses did in some ways. And the nurses were the ones that helped heal me. And they were my earliest healers. They would sit with me at my hospital bed. And there were some of them that I remember would hold my hand and just cry. 
cry more than I was crying. Just the amount of compassion that they showed me and their just their ability to start healing me was life changing. And so in my journey of recovery, I eventually decided to go back to nursing school and get a master's degree and focus my service in that in that way and give back. What particular aspect of nursing are you in now? Well, right now I'm actually I'm in between <laughs> again reinventing myself, but the only nursing that I've ever focused on was the neonatal intensive care. So, I've been a NICU nurse and the, at the University of California at Davis and San Francisco and I've been incredibly incredibly blessed to be able to focus my attention on the most vulnerable human life possible those babies the babies yes and just give us a sense of the the reality of your day as a neonatal intensive care nurse what do you do wow well working at level 4 trauma unit like in UCSF we see the worst of the worst of things that you really that are kind of unimaginable it is a position that feeds my soul and also can drain me at the same time where i feel like human life is touch and go some of our babies have the ability to to survive and and some don't and there's no rhyme or reason to which ones make it sometimes and which ones don't and so it's a unit where you're on high alert all the time you have to be because we're not only I'm not only watching my babies that I'm responsible for but I'm in a unit with all you know other nurses as well and we're all watching out for each other's babies so it's a high stress area it's not just about the baby I'm I'm with the mother I'm with the father during covid added a whole nother level of of stress and you know trauma to the to the parents. They say that the parents, when they leave, 75% of them have some kind of post-traumatic stress just for the parents. So I'm not only a baby nurse, I'm a, I'm a nurse to the family too. Tell us a little bit about your journey onward. How do you get led to the Hoffman process? Um, so <laughs> I've stated that I'm, I'm, kind of a continually reinventor, but um so my partner, now husband, we decided to move out of the state of California and move to Wyoming. And um I had to leave my job, which was probably one of the most challenging things I've I've done as an adult. <laughs> we moved to Jackson and we started a different life and which was a transition also during COVID. And Mark has two very dear friends here who are now become my friends who have been to the process. And they went about eight years ago. As I was still on my journey of searching and healing, I was skiing. I'm not a skier. I learned how to ski three plus years ago. For me, it's a miracle that I can even ski because of my accident. You know, there's, there's been times where I'm on the slopes and the trauma that I've that I have endured in my life can take me over sometimes. And so what brought me to the process really was trauma can sneak up on me in ways that I don't expect. And then it can turn into 
mental and emotional trauma, obviously, and it can ooze into my relationships, easily oozes into my most intimate relationship with Mark. It's amazing for me too, as I have learned to keep my heart open and become a more loving person. At the same time, there's this, it brings up trauma from my past of you fear of abandonment. And, you know, if I love this person too much, then I, I can't do that. Cause if I do that, I'm going to close, I need to close down to protect myself. So in my journey of healing, keeping my heart open and trusting in spite of the trauma I've endured, not only physically, but emotionally has, is I, I feel is really what eventually led me to Kaufman. Your recovery allows you to see the world with new eyes. And then you head into a different profession and in that journey, you meet someone, you move to a different place, you're growing deeper connected to one another. And in that intimate partnership, and some additional trauma comes up around unhealed childhood wounds. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like my last frontier, my greatest spiritual journey has been this intimate partnership that I have with Mark and feeling like I deserve the love that he gives me. Being able to share in such a deep, unique way that I have over time, one of my patterns has been to learn to distrust, is not be able to trust another person. And so in spite of him being incredibly loving and generous and, and kind and fun and playful and all these things, I notice how I want to protect my heart. The journey of keeping my heart open and really practicing trust and feeling like I actually deserve a relationship with a man who loves me and who I love back has been something I've had to learn literally the last few years. Did you know it was connected to your childhood or did Hoffman teach you that? Okay, so your your friends recommend Hoffman, you sign up, then what happens? Well, <laughs> I did the paperwork. Uh, I also did the essentials previously as well, which obviously opened up for me some of the patterns that I could see. But then as I started to do the paperwork, I, I decided when I went into Hoffman that like, I was going all in. There was no way that I wanted to live the way that I was living. Meaning if I looked around me, I had this amazing life and I had this amazing man I was living it with and I couldn't let myself feel it. And so when I went into Hoffman, I'm like, I'm doing whatever I can to just uncover the trauma. My mother was an alcoholic. She was an alcoholic my entire life. My dad spent most of his time, if not the majority of it, catering to my mother. And we all did. There was a lot of fear in our home. My primary caregiver did not, in my opinion, give me or my sisters the love that a mother would. And so I've on my journey, I've learned how to, how to mother myself and to feel love. It's funny that love and happiness could be a very triggering thing, but for me, for me, it was. And so when I went into my paperwork, I was just blown away. Like it brought up every wound that I thought I, that I could imagine and, and more. <laughs> and 
um, I remember looking back at my paperwork and I think I had like 310 patterns or something like that. I was walking around. I remember pre-process just walking around just like a live nerve ending, reliving a lot of the memories that I felt were stored in my body. I couldn't actually articulate what the memory was, but all I knew was that I had a lot of pain. I had a lot of shame and my body was experiencing it. It came out through tears. It came out through anxiety. It came out in ways that I would say were sideways. And, you know, my partner got the brunt of that. And I was doing my best to keep it from him as much as I possibly could keep it from him. In some ways, it just, it, it kind of just spewed out. So the pre-process work for me was like at the Band-Aid, I ripped it off, basically. <laughs> and so to take us to your process. What was it like those first few days for you to step into this immersive experience? First of all, I felt that the process was a luxury. I knew going in that it was a gift and I wanted to look at it that way. It didn't necessarily feel that way because I was feeling like I was being ripped apart, but I welcomed it. But I was terrified. I was absolutely a thousand percent terrified. I was terrified that my life was going to look so much different, that I was going to lose my partnership, that I just didn't know, but I had a trust and I had to go in and feel at first, there were a couple people that I met really early on who gave me some calmness and foundation to discover what I needed to discover. Um, and in the same time, I didn't necessarily know how much I was holding back. I thought I was all going all in. You know, Tuesday, Wednesday, my coach at the time just sensed that I was holding back. I was blown away by that because I was, I felt like I was going all in. And I believe in hindsight, one of my patterns is, you know, I just, I just really learned to not be able to express myself. It was not safe for me to express myself. It wasn't safe for me to, to be happy. It wasn't safe for me to be sad. It wasn't safe for me to do anything. And so one of my biggest breakthroughs at the process was really, really, truly allowing myself to be fully all in and not care what anybody thought. So how did that shift your work in the process, that kind of new understanding of, of actually going a bit deeper? Once I knew the process, I was getting ready for bed and I was standing talking to my coach who told me that you know, they'd know me for a little bit now. And if someone would ask them to describe me to them, that they still would, did not know who I was. I seemed to be taking my, my, the trauma that I had endured in my life and was beating myself up with it. And then also that I was trying so very hard. And the trying hard part was described to me in a way where I had so much in me and the trying hard was that I was trying to still suppress it. Like was trying to control the pain that I felt. Again, when I think about the process, I was terrified that I was actually going to hurt somebody with my own trauma. So I didn't have felt like I ever had a safe place to actually express all of it that was in me. 
my coach said to me also before I went to bed that night, I said, so like, what do you need to feel safe? When I went to bed, I had a few things, you know, in my mind and I went to sleep and I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and I woke up with that same feeling I've always woken up with, which is anxiety, a lot of anxiety, pressure in my chest, that fluttering that I feel like through my chest and my stomach and my throat, you know, without giving too much, <laughs> too much away for people who haven't done the process. I, I wanted to connect with that part of me that was so terrified. I thought, okay. And I just kind of held my chest and my stomach and just held myself there. And I said, what do I need to feel safe? And I kind of whispered, what do you need to feel safe? For me, I was talking to that three and a half year old that has been terrified and inside of me, my entire life, just terrified. Eventually, I kind of let her know that I was there and I was going to love her and no matter what, and that she mattered and that she made a difference. And eventually, over a few hours, um, I felt her melt into me. And I felt that hurt, scared, terrified three-and-a-half-year-old that was so fun and playful, inquisitive and curious, and who had lost her own self, who'd stayed hidden. I just eventually felt her melt into me, and I've never lost her. And I'm going to start crying, but to me, it was such a poignant part of my journey because... You know, like I was so, I didn't know she even existed. I had cut her out of who I am today and, or who I was before. And now I got her back and I've got that curious little playful, fun, loving, kind soul that I had hidden so long and that all the trauma had kind of covered up. That was the pivotal part of my process. And Monique, this is some night midweek as you're staring at the ceiling in your bedroom at the process. Yeah, I believe it was Wednesday night. The the power of an immersive experience where day after day you allow the process to work on you, to open you up, to heal you. And even though you're not in the classroom or you're not doing a specific experience, your healing is very much taking place at 3.30 a.m. in the morning or some wild hour there that night. Yes, yeah. And I I think, I feel, I know the process is brilliant in that way, where what I was doing sometimes didn't make sense to my brain at all. I'm like, why am I doing this? You know, and, but it made, it made perfect sense you know, as I had the time to myself, as I had time to, to rest and, and to recover. But that for me too, was a part of going all in was going all in meant I'm going to go all in, even in that our downtimes where I felt, but I know it's a journey and the healing can happen at any moment. And so I just know that I wanted to leave there feeling like I had done everything I could possibly do to heal this trauma. Part of it too was, was the time in between the classroom. That's a huge part of it. There's a huge part of healing that 
that I saw happen in other people during that time too. And the stories that I would hear, it was the most impactful part of my journey for sure. And so you head out, you leave the process and enter your world again with your partner, with your family. What happens? How do you know that the process is alive in you? For me, the process remains alive because I'm dedicated to practicing all the practices, all the tools that we learn there. And also the reflection of life back onto me feels different. I feel more joyful. Like I remember feeling gratitude for the first time in a way that I hadn't before. When I look at, you know, someone like Mark, at first he was like, "Hmm, I don't know if she's really different, (laughs) but I think with time, it's been obvious. I shared with him, I felt like the trauma had been literally removed from my body. And I've read the body keeps the score more than once. And I believe that I feel my energy, like I feel different to be around. It doesn't mean my patterns have gone away at all. I'm still triggered, less so triggered by love, meaning intimate, my intimate partnership with Mark. But I did have the opportunity to go back um, to see my dad and my family three months, four months later. You know, all of my patterns were still there. What I had to do is I really had to make conscious decisions to practice and feel the compassion towards myself and then also towards, you know, my father, my sisters. I thought that, wow, going to Hoffman was going to be, things were going to be completely different. And the reality is, is things will change with the other people. It's that I've, I've had a change and then I have to continue to, to do the work in order to show up embodied as the person who I am that I, that left the process. Monique, when you talk about tools and practices, one of the things that is becoming clear is that you actually view life relationships as a kind of way, a living practice, a walking meditation, that it's through your relationship with your husband, your now husband, through your relationships with your family of origin, that that practice of living into those relationships and learning from them is where you gain so much wisdom. Is that true? Oh, yeah, that's that's really true. That's actually a really great way to put it. I've heard a bazillion times, the only time there is is now. Whatever's coming up in my life, it's meant to be there. What I feel like what Hoffman's enabled me to do is it's enabled me to be more present in my life and be able to, to not confront, but to able to handle, to be more present in my life. So what's happening is my father could be standing before me saying words, right? And I could feel the trigger of seeing his pattern, which is my pattern. I can feel it in my body. And instead of me shutting down, sometimes I'll shut down, but instead of me shutting down, I will literally choose that right road of feeling compassion. And I will, I might put my hand on my heart, even he might not even notice it, but I just literally spent three weeks with him and I can, I feel a lot more love and compassion with him now more than I ever have. And myself, it's, it's a, it's been a healing journey 
for me just to be able to be with him. But in the moment, yes, the practice is really powerful. And, and I believe that's now who I am. I am somebody that will show up in the present moment and it's a practice, you know, experiencing joy is a practice. That's something I've realized lately that if I was happy, it was very triggering. I would be like, no, 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 don't, don't be too happy. Don't shine your light. That shrinking piece for me is slowly and sometimes quickly going away because I am living, remembering, I know my body remembers the process and I put those tools to work. And so my relationships are a way of me becoming who I really want to be in this world. Yeah. And it's almost a, a reverse of the trauma in your body. And Bessel van der Kolk spoke about the body keeps the score. Part of what you're saying there too is that your body can also remember the goodness, the experiences, the joy, the vitality, the healing that you experienced during your process. And you say your body remembers that? Oh, yeah. It really does. And for me, it is has definitely had to be something that I have to go back to. I know that one of my old patterns was just, just really be stuck in the work, like the hardness of everything. And so there are moments of the, the process that stand out for me where I was extremely open and joyful and playful. And I know that that's still in me and I can access that part of me as well. Life to me, I thought was just always so hard. I'm just as playful as I was that three and a half year old was. And so I feel that in my body. I, I recall that. I remember that. And I believe that that's still there. And it's something that I want to continue to really nurture and bring, bring forth because the trauma that I've endured physically and emotionally had dimmed that light and made me really terrified to feel any kind of happiness or joy. Important parts of my process are remembering those, remember, <laughs> remembering some of the fun that we had there. Monique, what's it like to talk about this journey out loud? I know you're in the process of writing a book. What's it been like over this time to share about your story? I definitely have been one who has been very scared to share. I've been scared to be open. You know, it's funny because I never wanted my accident to define me. And the fact is that because I kept it so quiet and I hid from it and I didn't really necessarily own it as much as I am now, it defined me anyway. And it defined me in a way that I, I allowed it to define me instead of, instead of me allowing myself to define it. So it's freeing. It's, I still feel, I feel nervous but I can still sense in my chest and in my throat, kind of like an expansiveness. So it's, for me, it's healing to be able to share it. I hope that I will be someone one day that can inspire people to keep going, to lean into their resilience that we have as humans. Hopefully my resiliency and my experience can let someone else continue to share their light with others. So for me, it's been I feel nervous that I'm sharing my story, but at the same time, it's like, I I can't hold it in anymore. 
you know, I wasn't put on this earth, I believe, to just stay small and to keep my mouth shut and to not express who I am. And and I believe Brett Hoffman was was the key for me to be able to really truly learn how to express myself in the world, to feel safe enough to express myself, even when I necessarily didn't feel safe. Monique, you've mentioned shame. Tell us a little bit about what you discovered in your process about shame. So during the process, first of all, I love the model, the negative love syndrome model that we use there at the process. And I recall pre-process feeling the shame of the trauma, meaning like somehow I deserved to continually endure trauma throughout my life, whether it was physical or emotional. And that for some reason, no amount of work that I would ever do would ever take that away. And that was my cross to bear. During the process, I've heard of vindictiveness, but I never realized how deeply self-vindictive the self-vindictive pattern that I that I have nurtured <laughs> over my life, where basically I was taking the trauma and I was beating the crap out of myself with it. And not only the voices that were going in my head, but somehow that I expected the trauma, that I deserved the trauma, that I was never going to get away from it and basically beat myself up with it, which just led to a deeper amount of shame. So I could be saving a baby's life or I could do the most spectacular thing in the world, which is possibly why in some ways I express that in my life because I wanted to be able to do these great things and you know help heal others. But underneath all of it was this deep core wound that I didn't deserve. In some ways, I feel like the life that I had. So, and that was just that ball of shame. No matter what I do, I can't get away from it. I really discovered that voice and that pattern in such a way that I know now I hear it's a, it's a sneaky little voice. It's a sneaky pattern. It shows up now in different ways. But I hear and feel that self-vindictiveness, shameful pattern. I would never have experienced it or noticed it or been able to do anything about it hadn't I participated you know, in February in, in the process. I'm incredibly grateful for being able to, to have that experience and to know that it is possible to allow the trauma to heal and to move out so that I actually can be love in the world. And that shame doesn't need to control me anymore as it did before. What a beautiful way to end that I can be love in the world and that shame doesn't control me anymore. You know, I left there feeling I had to tell myself it it was safe to be me in the world as well, but that's been my practice. It's just to show up and be love and that is my purpose. That's why I'm here. Monique, thank you so much. So grateful for this conversation and for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. 
To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.